0: You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Hi there, Harborside folk. It's lovely to be able to reach out to you. It won't be long before we get to see each other in face to face. But for the moment, by this, by the miracle of modern technology, I'm coming to you and I'm speaking from Genesis chapter 42. I want to speak today about restoring broken relationships. I'm thinking, you know, about those relationships which we once had that were so important to us, and then they fell apart. Family relationships, friendships, business relationships. You know, those relationships which which once meant so much to us, and then they fell apart. And we grieve for them, and we long that somehow they might be restored. I've got relationships like that in my life, but I guess you do too. And of course, we could just wait till the other person um, takes the initiative. Um, we might feel that what they did was so bad, and what they said, what they did, and they can take the initiative if they want to. Um, he caused it, he can fix it. That's how we might feel about it. But we're Christians and we know a God who delights to make friends out of enemies we know a God who takes the initiative to restore broken relationships. Our Lord himself said, bless those who curse you, love your enemies. Um, and maybe we've been praying along those lines as well. Lord, show me what I can do to restore this relationship. Well, today I want to speak about three qualities that are pretty much essential if you want to restore a broken relationship. And they're faith and grace and sympathy. And I'm drawing them from this really wonderful chapter from from Genesis chapter 42 as we continue our series on the dreamer, the life of Joseph. In this chapter, Joseph is reunited with 10 of his brothers. And together they have to deal with, they have to confront what happened 20 years before. And how Joseph approaches this is really so helpful. So much to learn. There's a wisdom in in the story which I think will really help us when we think about restoring broken relationships. And I should just say too that this is not the whole story of reconciliation, nor does it teach us everything we need to know about restoring broken relationships. It's kind of restoring broken relationships, an introduction or level one. Let's first just remind ourselves of the story so far. And as you know, it's an epic story. Joseph belongs to a very unusual family and their family story was that Joseph's great grandfather Abraham had an encounter with God that led him on a nomadic journey in search of a promised land in the hope of becoming a great nation and then somehow of blessing the whole world. Now that sense of destiny was passed on from Abraham to his son Isaac and from Isaac to his son Jacob. Now, Jacob had four wives and 12 sons. That's right, four wives, 12 sons. What could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot did go wrong. And a lot that, one of the big problems in that family was Jacob's favoritism. Of his four wives, he loved Rachel the most. And of his 12 sons, he loved Joseph and Benjamin the most, the sons of Rachel. And it was this favoritism that got Joseph in trouble in the first place. Remember the special coat that Jacob made for Joseph? Remember the dreams of sheaves of wheat bowing down and the sun, moon, and the stars bowing down? Dreams about how Joseph's whole family would bow down to him? No wonder then that his 10 older brothers hated him. And no wonder then on that day back in chapter 37, some 20 years before um they saw him coming in the distance and said, "That here comes that dreamer, let's kill him. Well, in the end, they didn't kill him. They sent him away with some traders heading towards Egypt. And that was the last they saw of him until this day, the day we read about in Genesis chapter 42. In the intervening 20 years, Joseph has become very successful and is the governor of Egypt and the second in charge. And across the whole region at this time, there was a famine. And so Jacob sent his 10 sons down to Egypt to buy grain. And so as chapter 42 begins, there is Joseph supervising the sale of the grain. Then his brothers arrive, all 10 of them. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. I guess he looked like a standard Egyptian by then. They come up to Joseph and the first thing they do is bow down. And I'm reading from verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Imagine for a moment how Joseph must be feeling. Imagine how incredibly complex this is for him. Here are his brothers his own family, the very people who hated him and wanted to kill him because of his dream. And here they are after all these years and the first thing they do is bow down to him, fulfilling the dream. What sense is Joseph supposed to make about this? Um, I was right after all, my dream was true. Well, yeah, but... What comfort is there in that? What joy is there in that? You'd rather be wrong or had no dream at all than to and spare yourself the pain of being cast off by your family. And so I think we have to imagine in that moment, for Joseph, the complex pain of the past comes rushing back for him. Sometimes when we think about Joseph, we portray him as kind of the wise problem solver as if his wisdom and success allowed him to kind of engineer a family reconciliation. I don't see it that way at all. I don't think Joseph expected any of this. I'm pretty sure Joseph did expect his brothers to turn up That at that time. I'm pretty sure also that he intended to stay hidden from them because it says in verse 7 that he wanted to pretend to be a stranger and he had decided in advance to speak through an interpreter. And I'm pretty sure as well that Joseph just did not want that tragic chapter of his life reopened. Um, Joseph was now married. He had two sons. The first of his sons he called Manasseh. Manasseh is like the Hebrew word for forget. And when Joseph explains why he chose that name for his son. He said, God made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. Joseph thought he'd forgotten the past and then his brothers turned up and bowed down to him. And in verse 9 we read, Joseph remembered his dreams. I don't think Joseph wanted this. I don't think Joseph intended it. And I think from this moment on, Joseph was improvising, just winging it, making it up as he went along. And, you know, I'm pretty sure resolving broken relationships is always like that. And that's because we're always working from the inside out. We were active participants in the breakdown of the relationship We have to be active participants in the restoration of the relationship. And in that space, everything is subjective. Everything is negotiable. Everything is arguable. Nothing is stable or secure. Sure, we can stabilize things for ourselves if we insist that we know what went wrong or we insist that we know how the other person is going to fix it. That will make us feel stable and secure, but it won't restore the relationship. Um, It's too one-sided. The relationship will only be restored um, by opening ourselves up to the other person, by sharing the load, by meeting somewhere like halfway. And what that means is opening ourselves to an unpredictable process. And I think that's what's happening here in Genesis 42. Against his better judgment, against his preference, Joseph is caught up In a process Um, and so here we have Joseph suddenly surprisingly against his better judgment swept up again into the whirlwind of his family life now this is no longer the foolish 17 year old that we met earlier Joseph has changed his status has changed before Joseph had nearly no power in this chapter Joseph has almost all the power How will he use the power he has to progress the relationship with his brothers and his family? And that brings us back then to the question of the basic qualities we need as we exercise the power that we have in the relationships we are a part of. So basic qualities we need to address the broken relationships in our lives. Faith and grace and sympathy. Let's start with faith. Joseph speaks harshly to his brothers. You can, we can forgive him for that, I'm sure. He accuses them of being spies and he throws them in prison. You can imagine him thinking, you can have a few days in a, an Egyptian prison. I had two years there, you can have a couple of days. Of course, um the brothers deny that they're spies, and their explanation is we're just a family. We're not, we're not a nation. We're not agents for another nation spying on you. We're just a family in need. And in the course of telling the story of their family, they reveal that their father Jacob is alive and that their brother, uh, not by name, but that they have another brother and that he is also alive and well and with their father. So Joseph has an idea, has a plan really. And the plan is that Nine of the brothers will stay in Egypt and one of the brothers will go home and get Benjamin. It's kind of a test of their truthfulness. The logic is, you know, you say you have another brother. Well, go home and get him and bring him here and that will prove that your alibi is true. But of course, it's more than that, isn't it? Because Joseph knows they've got another brother. Joseph is working on something else. He wants to slow it down. And he wants to be in some way reunited with his beloved brother, Benjamin. So they have three days in prison to think about this new development. And so does Joseph. And in those three days, Joseph changes his mind. And I'm reading now from verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. He's about to tell them the new plan. But before he does that, he says, I fear God. He speaks about God. But I I don't think he means I'm afraid that God will do something to me or us. He means I revere God, I honor God. And somehow his awareness of God, his respect for God has led him to change his mind. And this, I think, points up the first quality we'll need if we're to work towards the restoration of broken relationships, and that's faith. In God, What does faith in God have to do with restoring broken relationships? Well, I think it means that we have a sense that we are not acting in isolation, that God is real, God is present, God is interested in what happens in the course of this process. And God is also interested in the way we conduct ourselves in the process. Broken relationships are messy and unstable, but to trust God in the midst of a messy relationship, well, that's an anchor in the storm. It's certainly comforting to know that our relationship with God is stable and secure when this relationship we're attending to is so unstable and so shaky. In my experience Though, faith in God is not an anesthetic. Faith in God, in the context of trying to restore a broken relationship, it doesn't numb the pain. But it does make us braver. It makes us more courageous. And I think it makes us more hopeful with a sense that God is in this and we can find a way forward. I do think it's possible for one person to have faith for two people even if that faith is a feeble thing, even if that faith is just a silent prayer right in the heat of the moment, Lord, Lord, help us. Let's not underestimate the power of prayer right in the thick of things, right in that tense, difficult moment. Lord, help us. And of course, if your faith is small, you can pray that God would increase it. I believe, help my unbelief, help me to have a prayer in the midst of that difficult negotiation. So we're looking for the basic qualities that we need to restore broken relationships. And the first of these is faith in God. And the second is grace. So over those three days, Joseph has rethought the plan and he's kind of flipped it. Now nine of the brothers will go home and one of the brothers will stay there in Egypt. Why that change? Well, he says in Verse 19, so that they can take grain back to their starving households. Joseph has had time to think about the people involved in this relationship and in this story, the other people whose lives are threatened by the famine. If only one brother returns, that won't nearly be sufficient to take the supplies for 10 households. Um, And so Joseph changes his mind. He's thinking practically about the welfare of his family, even though actually he probably doesn't know them, wives and nieces and nephews. And then if you read on, you'll find that not only does he send the nine brothers home with their donkeys loaded with grain, but he also gives them their money back so that when they open their bags, each one finds exactly the amount of money that they spent buying the grain in the first place. Of course, when they discover that, it fills them with fear because they think it's a kind of a trap. But at the same time, it means that they're getting this life-saving grain for free. And that's grace. And it provides, I think, a really beautiful illustration of the concreteness of grace. I'm on a mission to persuade Christians that grace is concrete. It's practical. It's earthy. It's anchored in ordinary human needs. It's a response to human need. And the restora- and in the restoration of broken relationships, there's nothing quite so useful and helpful as a big dose of concrete grace. In Romans 12, verse 20, Paul echoes our Lord's teaching when he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, then give him something to drink. Well, In my strange imagination, what I envisage is an ordinary Christian is there and his opponent is berating him, insulting him, uh, criticizing, ridiculing, and it goes on and on and on. Maybe he's punching him as well, but he's giving him a hard time and it goes on and then the pace starts to change. The the, the energy starts to, 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 to slacken off. And Christian senses an opportunity And he grabs a hold of this great weapon, his greatest weapon in the context of a relationship. And he waits for the moment. And just as his enemy pauses for breath, he says, are you hungry? You are, aren't you? I could make you, a. you're thirsty too. Let me get you something to drink and something to eat. That will help you, won't it? What is Christian's greatest weapon? It's grace, concrete grace. Not, not, The idea of grace, not the word of grace, not the doctrine of grace, even though that's a beautiful doctrine, but a sandwich and a drink, the concreteness of grace. And in the same way, one of the great weapons we have to right the wrongs of the past to restore a broken relationship is grace, concrete acts of kindness and generosity. And now the business of restoring a broken relationship starts to look a bit more manageable, a little bit more on a human scale. I knew a man once who said that whenever somebody intimidated him, he would imagine that man in his underwear and it seemed to bring his opponent down to size. Well, there's no underwear here, but it's similar in the sense that your enemy, your opponent, the person who's hurt you, well, they're a human being just like you. Their needs are totally predictable, just like yours are. They eat, they drink, They get cold, they get hungry, they get thirsty, they need to sleep. Yeah. Now, knowing that and with a heart full of grace, we have something to do. We have something to begin. We have a way in to the relationship. Now, look, I'm not suggesting that that in itself would solve the problem, but I do think grace shifts the ground. Grace creates new possibilities it shifts the balance <coughs> and you can pray for grace. You can pray for an eye to the practical needs of the other person. So faith and grace, two qualities that we need if we set out as we set out to restore a broken relationship. So Joseph explains the new plan to the brothers and this leads us to the emotional high point of this passage and to the third of our qualities, which is sympathy. At this point, the brothers start speaking among themselves in Hebrew, and Joseph is listening in. He can understand them, of course. He can understand everything they're they're saying. And this is what they say to each other, and I'm reading from verses 21 and 22. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother, because of Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben said, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen, and now we must give an accounting for his blood. What's the emotional tone of that conversation that Joseph is listening into? It's distress. You'd think the brothers would be pleased at this point because plan B is better than plan A. Now nine of the brothers get to go home. Nine of the families will get food. Well, all of them will, but nine get to carry it back. You'd think that would be a good outcome. So why are they distressed? Well, their distress tracks back to that day 20 years before when they betrayed their brother Joseph. Did you see how vividly they remember that day? He pleaded with us for his life. We saw how distressed he was and we wouldn't listen. The suffering of Joseph all those years before was still alive in them. His distress that day was still inside them, as real in them as if it had happened the day before. And what about Joseph? What's happening to Joseph as he listens to his brothers? We read in verse 24, he turned away from them and he began to weep. This is not the last time that Joseph will weep in the story of Joseph, but it's the first time. And in that moment, Joseph weeping, the brothers distressed, they're occupying the same emotional space it's only a beginning because they're still hiding from one another, but it's a start. They're feeling for each other. They're feeling with each other. Call it sympathy. Call it empathy. Call it fellow feeling. There's an emotional connection. They're connecting at an emotional level. And if, if we are hoping to restore a relationship, then, then we need to pray for sympathy We need to pray that our hearts will be open enough to the other person to feel something for them and feel something with them, to begin to enter into what their experience has been and to feel it inside ourselves. So that's a third quality that will help us as we set out to restore a broken relationship, sympathy, an ability to feel with and for another person. So that's an introduction to restoring broken relationships. Three things we will need, three things we can pray for. Faith, grace, and sympathy. I have broken and strained relationships in my life, and I'm pretty sure you do as well. But I've also experienced reconciliation and the restoration of damaged relationships. And I've experienced the beautiful reality that sometimes... Restored relationships can be stronger and better than relationships that were never broken at all. And I know, of course, the God who delights to make friends out of enemies. So may our good God give us all everything that we need, the qualities we need to make us good at restoring broken relationships.